This is episode one of season two of We The Power with Bill McKibben. We The Power, a podcast from Patagonia. I believe the moment that we are all in is a wake-up call. We want to create the conditions for peace and we want peace to last. And that won't happen without a genuine and deep community on energy transition. That's the voice of Svetlana Romanka speaking to me from the Ukraine. And this is We The Power, a podcast from Patagonia all about community energy with me, Lucy Siegel. So we're back. This is the first episode of a brand new season of We The Power. We always wanted to say more about community energy because you had so many more questions. Then a few things happened. In a nutshell, the issue of how we get our energy and the impact of that could not be more critical. So in this brand new episode, Ukrainian environmental lawyer and climate activist Svetlana Romanka and Bill McKibben, the venerated climate activist, will explain just what is at stake. Right now, fossil fuels are powering the war in Ukraine. There's an intensifying energy crisis across Europe and the chance to address the climate crisis is slipping away. To put it simply, community energy is part of the fix and we need it now. As Svetlana said, and she is incredible, there is plenty of cause for hope. What gives me hope is that if the cause of these crises is the same, then the solutions might also be. Let's go to Bill first. He is the absolute OG of the climate movement. He released his book, The End of Nature, in 1989, and he's gone on to form really important grassroots movements like 350.org. Through the divestment movement, he's helped to bring people together from across the world to shift trillions of dollars of funding away from oil and into renewable energy. So he's been thinking about this problem for a long time, and he now believes we are at a pivotal point for the planet and global politics. I asked Bill why he believes now is the crucial moment to take action on renewable energy and why he coined the wonderful phrase, heat pumps for peace. Well, Lucy, two things have happened in the last month. One is the horrible, hideous war that Vladimir Putin has launched in Ukraine. And the other is, you know, some combination of the IPCC report told us that our window is quickly closing and the temperatures in the Antarctic running 70 degrees Fahrenheit above normal, which seemed to prove the point. Both these crises, the rise of insane autocrats like Putin and the destruction of the planet's climate system have the same link. Uh, They both come from the fact that we burn fossil fuel in huge quantities. And the only way to get off burning fossil fuel is to, well, stop burning it and replace it with electricity that comes from the sun and the wind. Uh, Heat pumps are uh, one example of how to do that. They're a great new technology that replaces the gas or oil furnace in your basement. And so if the U.S., say, was serious about helping Ukraine, it would be sending not only anti-tank weapons off to Central Europe, it would be sending heat pumps and insulation and everything else off to Western Europe to help them break the hold that Putin has on Western Europe's economies. Uh, This is the perfect example of a pivotal choice moment where we could move in a big new direction for lots of reasons and quickly. And 
we don't get too many of these moments. Often they come in wartime. Do you have heat pumps and insulation to spare in the U.S.? Yes. A heat pump is basically an air conditioner that also works in reverse. And uh, Americans invented air conditioners, and we have a lot of factories for making them that have a lot of capacity. Apparently, we could be turning out millions between now and next October when it gets cold again in France and Germany and the UK. And we have lots of insulation. Uh, The other thing that we have is a law called the Defense Production Act that allows the president of the United States to bypass our completely dysfunctional and corrupt Congress and order up these kind of things on his own say-so. It's been used over and over again since the Second World War, including by both Biden and Trump to spur the production of vaccines. So there's no reason it couldn't be used in this case for something just as essential. Okay, this was so striking to us that we immediately went to look it up. So the Defence Production Act of 1950 was part of a war mobilisation effort in response to the Cold War to enable the might of American industry to be turned to the production of weapons. We often hear, don't we, that we need to summon a kind of war mentality to combat climate change. But could the Ukraine crisis make that shift of mindset possible? This is less about the control of fossil fuel, which is often what America's wars in the Middle East seem to be about, at least in part. Uh, This is different. It's a war funded by fossil fuel. Uh, Putin has nothing else going for him. 60% of Russia's export earnings are just oil and gas. I mean, look around your house for something Russian to boycott. Uh, Unless there's an old bottle of Stolichnaya in the back of your liquor cabinet, It's also the weapon that he's long used to cow Western Europe into submission. You know, he's got his hand on the gas tap. And so he's always said, cross me at your own peril. As long as that's true, it's not just Putin. It's any of the people who end up in control of coal or oil or gas. Think about fossil fuel. It exists in relatively few places on the planet. So the people who are in control of those places have a great amount of unearned and undeserved power. We see all of these deficits with with fossil fuels. Would it not be a situation where you would get the same problems arising out of renewables deployed at scale? So you would still get some sort of conflict, people fighting over ownership, that it would just transpose to a different means of production? I mean, look, there are no utopias, and we should by this point be clear that humans are able to fight about almost anything. But the intensity of it should go way down just because of the physical properties of renewable energy. I mean, sun and wind are everywhere, and neither Vladimir Putin nor the Koch brothers nor whoever else have figured out a way to embargo the sun, you know. They haven't figured out a way to turn off the wind. So they're less powerful. Now, there are, say, minerals like cobalt and lithium and rare earth minerals that you need in order to to exploit renewable energy fully. And we have to figure out how to mine them as humanely and, and environmentally sanely as we can. But One of the things we don't think about often enough is that the switch to a renewable energy economy means we need a hell of a lot less of that stuff. So you mine 
you know, some lithium once and you use it to build a solar panel or a battery and then it sits there for 25 years. The problem with coal is, or alternatively, if you're a coal company, the great beauty of it is you burn it every day and then you have to go dig up some more. We think that about 40% of all the ship traffic in the world is just merely carrying coal and oil and gas around the planet. That should give you some sense of the kind of dematerialization that's possible as we switch to uh, renewable energy. Because, yeah, you got to put the windmill blade on a ship if it's not being made domestically once. But once it gets where it's going, then it spins for the next 30, 40 years. You know, you don't have to keep rebuilding it every day because you burned up the last one. You're listening to We The Power with me, Lucy Siegel. In the midst of our global energy crisis, people are pushing for a clean path forward. The crisis in Ukraine is forcing most of Europe to confront the fact that our oil and gas supply is funding Putin's atrocities. It's pretty obvious that we need to break that dependency, else we'll be held to ransom for our heating and electricity needs. But this isn't the first time oil and gas have been at the bottom of global conflict, far from it. As Bill points out, we need to wean ourselves off any energy source which can be used to fund despots. Less centralised, community-owned renewables offer a way out of the trap we now find ourselves in. You can learn more about community-owned energy by heading to patagonia.com forward slash we the power. But if you're still wondering how locally produced small-scale renewable energy could be a solution to what is happening globally, have a listen to Bill McKibben. So I think it fits in in two ways. One, it would be really nice to use this transition to try and uh, erode some of the gross inequality that's risen on our planet anyway. And community ownership obviously helps there. But the other place it helps is that it makes it easier to go cite this stuff. Uh, because if people have some kind of ownership stake in it, well, they're less inclined to say, I don't want to look at a windmill. So that lessens it. I mean, if people look up at the windmill and think, huh, well, that's making some money for me or for my church or my union or whatever it is, uh, then that opposition tends to wane. We've seen exactly that. Do you have, because, you know, you are one of the people who really, really gets collective action, like how that really, really helps. Do you have any tips for how to start off those communities, start that conversation? I think often it starts with people who are really very concerned about climate change and the future. Because if you look around, I mean, there's really no other set of answers at scale that are going to make any difference. And once people sort of understand that, then often they become interested in trying to figure out how to do that where they are. And often they can work with other people in the community who are, have similar interests, but often on different things about local community economies. I mean, the good thing about sun and wind is they're everywhere. You're no longer shipping huge amounts of money out of your county to, you know, Riyadh or Houston or, or Moscow. Uh, you're keeping it closer to home. So there's often kind of local economy advocates. I mean, we should not be dependent for our most basic resources 
food, energy, we should be able to produce a lot of this stuff close to home so that we're not dependent on long lines of supply and fickle despots in order to produce it. So do you think that the fact that the the conversation has shifted, if you like, to maybe to resources, energy and war, do you think actually that might have a more traction with with people? I hope so. Truthfully, if I get in a despairing mood, I don't know whether people are as willing as they were 80 years ago to contemplate making any sacrifices in the name of standing up for things that we believe in. The last time there was a big land war in Europe, people really understood that, say, in America, that they needed to conserve, that they needed to change their habits, that we needed to turn our factories into what we called arsenals for democracy. Right now, people are whining about high gas prices as if that was somehow a plight comparable to what people are enduring in Kiev and uh, Mariupol and everywhere else. I mean, certainly there are a lot of people who are incredibly angry and moved by what's happening in Ukraine and by the plight of Ukrainians. What would you say to them? What can they do? Because they feel very powerless. Well, one of the most important things you can do for this whole wide variety of reasons we've been discussing is to stop consuming the stuff that fuels war and fuels the the climate crisis. And you can do it on your own. I mean, one can make the conversion of one's own house or garage or whatever, but it's equally important to join together with others to change government policy and financial policy so that it happens at scale and fast. I mean, we're past the point where we can solve any of these crises, one Tesla at a time, one vegan dinner at a time. The most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual and join together with others in movements large enough to make a difference. Yes, I think it's up to all of us to do what we can. And what I love about community energy is the fact that everyone can play a part and perhaps take something different. So we've spoken with community energy pioneers who've been organised by elders in the community in order to provide training and job opportunities for young people in the neighbourhood. So I guess instead of feeding the billionaire autocrats, energy can be used for good. Energy from heaven, not from hell. That's the watchword now going forward. Thank you, Bill McKibben. This is We The Power, a podcast from Patagonia with me, Lucy Siegel. In the midst of our global energy crisis, people are pushing for a clean path forward. And we're about to meet Svetlana Romanka, who has been fighting for the climate in the Ukraine for many years as an environmental lawyer. Now she's fighting for her country's survival. She's the Zero Fossil Fuel campaign manager for the Laudato Sea movement and currently organising for Ukrainian solidarity with Stand with Ukraine. They have motivated over 700 organisations from over 60 countries committed to ending all fossil fuel trade and investment in Russia to support Ukraine in ending the war. Svitlana is in Ivano-Frankivsk in the west of the Ukraine, so she is comparatively safe, she says, for now at least. But I wanted to know what life is like for her at the moment. I live in ivan Frankivsk, it's western Ukraine. It's been uh, bombarded for a few times. There were a few ex- explosions, including the very first day of February 24th. But in general, we are so privileged to be much more safe than our brothers and sisters in the eastern uh, Ukraine and in the south of Ukraine. And we've all seen the Bucha massacre 
and that are the places where the Ukrainians suffered the most, where they were killed, killed, raped, murdered. These are the horrors of war that we are experiencing. And being on the part uh, of Ukraine, which is currently relatively safe and more safe, I, I am still doing some efforts to end the war and to help those who suffer the most in other parts of our country. And it's amazing because you're also still thinking and working about the climate emergency. I truly believe that Ukrainians are uh, resilient enough to oppose and overcome the war. My belief in Ukrainians and my belief in that, that the climate crisis and uh, the war against Ukraine share the same roots, and these roots are fossil fuels, make me and our climate community to work tirelessly, not only for these crimes to be punished that has, has been committed uh, against the Ukrainian people and against the Ukrainian environment and against, against the uh, Ukrainian green development, but also um, there should be a new development and recovery from the war ashes when the war is over and when we win this war as Ukrainians. Do you think that other countries are doing enough to stand with Ukraine when it comes to fossil fuel, when it comes to Russian gas. What do you think that other countries should do now? Russia earns more than $700 million a day just by selling gas to the EU members. And half of Russian exports revenue are revenues for, from fossil fuels. So in 2021, uh, Russia's total exports reached out 490 billion, uh, and this year uh, there is a projection that if the EU won't put a ban on Russian gas, especially because that's uh, 40 percent uh, of uh, the EU annual gas consumption that Gazprom still supplies to uh, to the EU, it's very clear that this needs to stop all trade and investment into those harmful fossil fuel industry and supply has to be ended. And because Russia's war machine has literally been funded by the EU fossil fuel consumption. So we expect of the EU leaders to put a ban on Russia's gas uh, immediately and to put a ban on Russian oil immediately as well. I know that they did yesterday. They did it for uh, coal, but coal uh, makes only four billion Pro annual profit for Russia from 240 billions of net profits that Russia is going to get exporting uh, gas and oil as usual if we don't stop them. Of course, if we end all trade and investment into Russia's gas and oil, specifically the Putin's regime wouldn't have the resources to fund its war on Ukraine. And uh, we all need to remember that our reliance on fossil fuels in general to date has prevented governments and financial institutions from de-escalating the situation meaningfully and has funded the violence that we are seeing today. When I hear you say it so directly, it makes me feel angry because we are still hearing the narrative we can't afford to stop using this fossil fuel, what will happen to us? What do you think is the role of renewable energy in this narrative? Actually, I, here I would emphasize the demand for governments and financial institutions to ditch fossil fuels because uh, uh, in Russia and around the, the world, they are directly linked to violence, open wars and atrocities. Uh, 
but renewables play a very important role uh, in our transition, in our immediate transition from gas, because there is enough of renewable energy potential in the world, as that has proven by many reports so far. And if we just triple our investments into renewable energy globally, we will be able to make a renewable energy transition much, much faster than we even plan in some uh, documents, our action plans, our, our country strategies. And I, I think the central role in all of that, in all the green transition, plays, of course, industry, who is the main consumer of gas. And industry should be encouraged and uh, sometimes pressured to make this transition. For, for households, there are some options as well. Of course, as a consumers, we have to decrease our dependency on fossil gas that hits our home and on fossil fuels that hits our cars. That goes beyond saying, but industry should go first and government should go first in this supporting this renewable energy transition. But how that can be practically possible? Uh, heat pumps making uh, more ambitious goals uh, within the EU Green Deal and secure more financial resources for that, energy efficiency, and again, insulation of homes and renovation, which will be uh, also saving a lot of energy. These are specific steps that the EU can start from. How do you think that um, citizens of other countries can apply pressure? What can they do? to make this point? I truly believe in people power. I know that people power dismantles the systems of violence and oppressions. And I believe in this case, it will empower a transition to a new and renewable energy, to wind and solar panels and enable another monopolies as fossil fuels were. Because we also have to remember that conflicts uh, in other parts of the world, for example, Saudi Arabia uh, fueled uh, war in Yemen and many others have only been uh, made possible because of uh, revenues or the fossil fuels as the main commodities that have been owned by a very few elite and the governments. If people uh, across the world will demand community-based uh, free access to renewable energy, not allowing those elites and governments, uh, again, to profit from all renewable energy sources, then we have a chance when we will have access to community-owned distributed renewable energy sources. And about the direct demands, I can say that yesterday there are protests across the European countries. There were protests in Brussels, in Berlin, led by Fridays for Future, but also yesterday was a thousand and thousand attended protests in Berlin. In Germany, the main country is very much dependent on Russian gas which uh, so far opposes the uh, full ban of Russian gas uh, within the European Union. And thousands of people were laying on the streets and demanding a change, a renewable energy transition, ban all trade uh, with Russia regarding the oil and gas specifically, and demanding the end of war in Ukraine. So I believe these actions are expressing uh, the will for change and expressing uh, the hunger for change. We desperately need change, and this change should be a renewable energy transition. And, of course, ending the war in Ukraine first, because uh, it very much depends on how we end this war in Ukraine now. This means how we, in general, will be able 
to overcome the climate crisis, which comes in parallel, and the consequences of climate crisis would be also devastating, and they already are in some regions of our planet. So we have a unique chance, decisive historical moment, to stop both immense crises that we've been so far, climate crisis that we've been for such a long time and not uh, properly reacting to that, and the uh, war in Ukraine, which is huge humanitarian catastrophe and threatens all European nations and, of course, the humanity, not only well-being, but, but existence. Before all of this started, what was the Ukrainian feeling about climate change and renewables and energy? Did you feel like you were making progress? Uh, yes. First of all, we had a huge shift opposing using fossil fuels and uh, uh, creating uh, all conditions for renewable energy transition. In 2018, six Ukrainian cities have made the public commitments towards 100% renewable energy transition. Even being in such a like comprehensive Ukraine environment, when Ukraine was still dependent uh, on fossil fuels as well, uh, those cities took a leadership and they committed to 100% renewable energy transition. And in January this year, one Ukrainian city named Vinnytsia has made a public commitment and adopted a public resolution with the city council and local deputies to join the European Green Deal and implement European Green Deal targets within Ukraine. With these hopes and with these commitments, we uh, had a lot of hopes that this bottom-up created green movement, green development and more ambitious goals that states set up so far for, for the green energy transition, I mean, on the uh, level of a government and state, will help us to accelerate the era of a green transition and, and fossil fuels in Ukraine. But uh, some of the cities, of, of course, have been affected. But we truly believe that after the war ends, we will have opportunity to rebuild, to facilitate and achieve a green recovery from the war ashes. It's incredible to hear about all the work that you've done and all the progress that you've made. And I really hope that none of that is lost. So do you have hope? And how do you keep hope alive? How do you keep pushing forwards as you're doing? I do have hope always. I will push for a green transition and for ending fossil fuels, for seizing all investments from fossil fuels, uh, those uh, fuels that uh, feed the war against Ukraine and those who are feeding conflicts in other parts of the world. I believe this is the moment that we are all in is wake-up call, a moment where we should finally start to take seriously the recommendation of the IPCC because these fossil-fueled wars are not just taking place in Ukraine but have driven conflicts in many countries across the world. It's time to accelerate the transition towards 100% renewable energy system. And I truly believe that a different tomorrow is feasible. Tomorrow, free from Putin and other petrodictators, is feasible. And tomorrow, free from climate-hostile wars and war-feeding wars, war-feeding fossil fuels, is also feasible. It's not a coincidence that the IPCC was approving one of the latest reports when the invasion and war in Ukraine started. I do have belief that as a humanity we can overcome these 
For example, with the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty, which will make impossible the proliferation of fossil fuels. I know that many countries and states are already thinking about non-proliferation of fossil fuels, and I truly believe that we can combine both fossil fuel non-proliferation and green transition, renewable energy transition to community-led energy. Now, you may not have heard this phrase, fossil fuel non-proliferation, before, so here's a brief rundown. The Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Initiative calls for an international treaty to prevent fossil fuel exploration and expansion and ensure a managed phase-out of fossil fuel production to limit global warming. You can sign up as an individual or a group. It's modelled on the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and it follows the science that fossil fuels need to stay in the ground. And it's taken on a new urgency. We want to create the conditions for peace and we want peace to last. And that won't happen without a genuine and deep community-owned energy transition. So I'm making this call for those who are the same believers as I am. We can do it. This is a decisive moment in the history. But who said that we cannot change the history? Right now, we are remaking our history as Ukrainians, trying to end this fossil-fueled horrific war. And we still hope. I believe we all can have hope everywhere and end our dependency on fossil fuels immediately. Wow. Thank you to Svetlana. What a place to end this first episode. She has so much hope and courage, yet she's faced with the terrifying consequences of war in her own country. I don't know how I would react in the same conditions, but I don't know if I would have that much courage. I hope Svetlana has inspired you to take action on your own energy, wherever you are. Stand with Ukraine, join up with others and help to stop our reliance on oil and gas. Thank you to the awe-inspiring Svetlana Romanka and Bill McKibben for joining us on this episode. If you have been inspired by their words, and how could you not be, you can learn more about community-owned energy by heading to patagonia.com forward slash we the power. And you can listen to the rest of the series there too. In the next episode of We the Power, we'll be finding out how communities in the Ahr Valley in Germany are hoping to build back better from floods. Fighting climate crisis with community power. Join me next time. You have been listening to We the Power, a podcast from Patagonia. For more information, visit patagonia.com slash we the power. We the power.